five months ago when we sat down and put together a preaching schedule and Zach said, I think we should do a series called Benefit of the Doubt. And I was like, I love that. I love to talk about people's doubts. I love to give people a place to doubt, to question. And he said, okay, I'd like for you to do week two, wrestling with God. All right, I've had my questions. I've had my concerns. I've had, God and I have had some shouting matches before. Five months ago, that seemed like a cerebral process. This week has been really hard. Because I've been wrestling. And if I'm honest with you, I'm up here tonight to tell you about wrestling with God. And I honestly don't care if you hear a word I say. Because I'm preaching this sermon to myself tonight. Because I'm pretty frustrated. And I'm hurt. And I've got a lot of why questions. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with God. If you've ever stood in a parking lot or in a bedroom or in your living room and pointed your finger at the sky and just shaken it and said, God, why? Where are you in the midst of this? Sunday night right after the St. Louis Cardinals clinched the NL Central Championship. Some of our best friends in St. Louis, former pastor I walked with, his son who loved the Cardinals, fell asleep. His name's Mitchell. Mitchell's been battling since he was 12 years old, a disease that has slowly eaten away at his nervous system and his spinal cord and has taken a kid who was a three-sport athlete, left him paralyzed, deaf, and essentially blind. And I have to ask, why? Why, God? Why do 19-year-old kids, why do 12-year-old kids get sick and battle for seven years with an illness that we can't find an answer to? With an illness that we can't get medicine for? Why? I want to read for you a blog that Mitchell's dad, Matt, wrote two weeks ago. It's his ponderings, it's his heart, it's raw. It's the words of a dad who's watching his kid fight for his life. The blog's called, How Should This End? My 19-year-old son has a debilitating and mysterious neurological disease that without some sort of yet-to-be-determined treatment is likely and slowly ending his life. He's been in and out of the hospital for seven years and is currently in with a serious relapse. Doctors are working hard to keep him breathing, eating, and moving. While sitting in countless hospital rooms watching this drama play out, all sorts of questions and thoughts and fears and prayers have come hither and yon in my mind. One of the more depressing yet interesting questions I find myself wondering is how should this end? 
Not how will it end, that's a different question. Nobody knows that. I wonder that too. But I also wonder how should this end? You see, everybody's life is a story. Everybody's story eventually comes to an earthly end. And I hope you'll forgive me for wondering, as a nervous parent, how and what should be the end of my son Mitchell's life? All things considered, what ending would be best? While trapped here in a hospital room with my ailing son, I find myself thinking about this. There are lots of reasons Mitchell should die. He needs to stop suffering. He needs to go be with Jesus and play basketball and guitar and all the things he used to be able to do. His death could inspire lots of people to take their lives more seriously and lead others to Christ. Perhaps his untimely passing might help spur the search for new medicines for this mysterious disease. And from a narrative perspective, all the best stories are tragedies. William Wallace had to die. Harry Potter had to die. Obi-Wan Kenobi had to die. And of course, Jesus had to die. For the good of many, as he himself says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Maybe Mitchell, too, has to die for reasons we can only imagine. But he shouldn't. Good people like Mitchell shouldn't die. Bad people should get hit by buses. Bad people should get neurological diseases. Bad people like Voldemort, Hitler, and the orange-haired bully who smacked gum in my hair on the bus in junior high, they should die. The world needs more people like Mitchell to stick around for a while. So I don't know who's writing Mitchell's story. Sometimes it seems like God is. Sometimes the devil Whoever it is, Michelle and I will come to accept whatever fate. I mean, everybody dies eventually, right? The quicker we can accept that, the better our lives will be. And as we come to accept Mitchell's fate and ours, we've actually grown as people. But damn it, we prefer a different ending. An ending different than one it seems we're slowly watching play out and agonizingly so. As good as it might be for the story, for Mitchell to move on, he's not ready for that and neither are we. There are tales from his life yet to tell, experiences yet to relate, there are comic moments yet to recount, romances yet to write down, successes and failure yet to describe, there are movies yet to watch. So I ask, dear author of Mitchell's fate, type a different ending. Reconsider this earthly conclusion. Save Mitchell from this bus. We are grateful for every moment you give us with him here on earth. Before and when he joins the saints in the new heavens and earth. Until then, we're with him to the bitter end. We just hope this is not it. Watching this family Wrestle with God. Wrestle with answers they'll never get. 
wrestle with questions that nobody should ever have to ask. And I'm not blind enough to think that there aren't people in this space tonight wrestling with situations like this or worse, but their pain feels the same and you're wrestling. So what I want to share with you tonight is what I think Mitchell would share with you. Unfortunately, Mitchell tapped out of his wrestling match Tuesday morning. But these are the words I think he would share. Or maybe better yet, they're the words and the lessons I've learned from watching Mitchell and Matt and Michelle and his little brother Max and his little sister Miranda wrestle with God. They're not revolutionary. They're actually pretty basic. But sometimes I think when we get into those places of deepest pain, of deepest hurt, what we really need is a reminder of what we already know. And so I hope this reminder is as helpful to you as it has been to me this week. The main thing I want you to hear, if you don't hear anything else tonight, I want you to hear this one thing. We follow a good God who shows up in the middle of our pain. Whether you feel it in the moment or not, it's true. We follow, we believe in, and we serve a good God who shows up in the middle of our pain and our hurt and doesn't leave us alone. Tonight, to prove that point, I want to, show, I want to share with you three stories from Scripture that help us understand other people who have wrestled with God and what we can learn from that. But what I want you to see in that is six truths about who God is. Because I think who this God is that we wrestle with is almost more important than what we're wrestling about. Who this God is that we're wrestling with is more important than what we're wrestling about. So if you've got your Bible and you want to follow along, open up to Genesis chapter 32. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. Or if you've got it on your phone, pull that out. Genesis chapter 32, verse 22. Now, if you are not familiar with the story of Jacob... Jacob might be one of the craziest overall stories in all of Scripture. I mean, if you just start reading, I had to teach Jacob to the middle school and high school kids last night a different passage. That story was just as crazy as this one. As I've studied, studied the story of Jacob this week, I've come to just be like, this guy had a crazy life. So I would encourage you to kind of explore that through Genesis on your own if you want this week. But here's Jacob's story, Genesis 32, 22. He's going back to meet his brother, the brother he stole his birthright from. So he has no clue, like he just stole his brother's inheritance and now he's on his way back to ask forgiveness. So he's a little bit worried, he's a little bit scared, he's not sure what to do. He takes his wife and kids and he walks across the river, leaves them on the other side and he comes back to camp and he's all by himself. And we pick up the story there in verse 22. And it says, this left Jacob all alone in the camp. 
And a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he could not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. Now this sounds kind of normal, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know, maybe not normal. Like Jacob walks into camp and there's a dude there and they're going to start wrestling. They're going to start fighting with each other. But if you read down a couple more verses, this is not just a guy. This is God. This is God who created the universe, who created the trees, who created the skies, who knit us together, who holds all that in his hand, comes down in a human form, and he's going to wrestle Jacob. And the most ludicrous part of all this is that he can't win. I don't know what, I don't know what Jacob looked like, but I think he made Greg look like a little minuscule like weenie with no muscles. Like, how do you not like... How do you grab a hold of God and be like, I'm holding your ankle and I'm not letting you go? And God goes, I can't beat him. I don't actually think that's what happens. I think this is a little bit more, I don't know how many other dads do this, but my boys and I like to wrestle. They're physical kids. I'm a, I'm a phys- I don't mind touch and all those things. And so they'll come and they like attack me. And then we have these wrestling matches. And I have laid on the ground with them laying across my chest. And I'm like, I can't get up. I can't move. You guys win. Right? That's not true. I could take one of them in each hand and push them off. Could you combine their weight? I'd simply outweigh them by like 60 pounds. I could lay on top of them and crush them. But <laughs> that's, that's not true. That's not Right? You see, the first thing we learn about this God we wrestle with is this God, our God, is a compassionate God. He's a God who enters into the fight, who enters into the wrestling match, who lets Jacob struggle. But instead of hurting Jacob, instead of ending Jacob's life, think about this. Moses can't look at the face of God or he'll die. Elijah can't look at the face of God or he'll die. And Jacob grabs a hold of God's ankle and won't let go and wrestles with him face to face. Our God is compassionate. In the middle of the storms of life, in the middle of the things that life throws at us, this God who we serve has compassion on us. He shows up and he's compassionate and he's graceful towards us. The second story I want us to look at is the story of Job. I don't know how many of you know the story of Job or how familiar you are with the story of Job, but Job is like, I love the story of Job. I don't know, maybe I'm just crazy. I just love the story of Job. Job gets like stuck in this cosmic war between God and Satan. Satan walks into God's like throne room and he's like, of course Job follows you. You give him everything he wants. And God says, well, then test him. I bet he'll still follow me. I bet he'll still love me. I bet he'll still worship me if he loses all his stuff. And so that's exactly what Satan does. He goes and takes all Job's stuff. And then he takes all Job's family. And Job goes and like puts on sackcloth and ashes, which was like their way of mourning back then. And he sits there and Job's wife 
Job had the best wife and best friends. That's not serious. I really hope none of you have friends like Job had friends. Job goes, just, Job's wife walks out and goes, just curse God and die. What? That is not the encouragement I need in the middle of my storm. And Job's friends come and they're like, well, if you'd stop sinning, maybe God would stop punishing you. Again, not the words I need in the middle of life's wrestling match. But the end of Job, Job chapter 38 through 41, God finally shows up. See, God doesn't show up all the time right in the middle of our, right the beginning of our wrestling match, but he shows up and he shows up to Job and he goes on for four chapters of scripture listing and asking Job questions. I'm going to read for you a few excerpts out of that. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying lines? What supports its foundations? And who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you ever visited the storehouses of snow or seen the storehouses of hail? Can you direct the movement of the stars, binding the clusters of the Pileads or loosening the cords of Orion? Job, can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Is, this, it, is it your wisdom that makes the hawk soar and spread its wings towards the south? Is it your command that the eagles rise to the heights to make its nest? You might be like, Jason, this is not very comforting. God's like asking Job some tough questions. But I think at the heart of those tough questions, we see the second truth about the God we serve. The God we serve is bigger than we could ever imagine. The God we serve is bigger than we could ever imagine. And when I'm in the middle of the storm, I don't want a teeny God. I don't want a God that can't take it if I get mad and I scream and I yell and I say, God, where are you in this? 19-year-olds aren't supposed to die, God. Where are you? A small God can't answer that. A small God might get scared and run away. When Job cries out to God in chapter 30, I cry to you, O God, but you don't answer. You stand before, I stand before you, but you don't even look at me. You've become cruel towards me. You use your power to persecute me. You throw me into the whirlwind and destroy me in the storm. God, where are you? And Job's not the only one that gets upset. The writer of Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. You see, I don't think a big God, a God who set the earth in place, who keeps and sustains it, when I get upset and I raise my voice, or maybe I use those words we're not supposed to use, or when Job yells in frustration or the psalmist writes it, I don't think God sits in heaven chewing his fingernails like, oh no, Jason's mad, what am I going to do? I think God sits there with his arms wide open. And he says, I'm bigger than you. I'm bigger than the storm you're in the middle of. Come wrestle. Come yell. Come get upset. I can take it. 
I'm the God who created the universe. I'm the God who loves you. I'm the God who sent my son Jesus so I could be in relationship with you. It's okay. I'm not scared. The storm you're in doesn't scare me. The pain you're feeling doesn't scare me. The anger you have doesn't scare me. Because I'm bigger than you ever imagined I was. And I love you. Our God is compassionate. Our God is bigger than we can ever imagine. And thirdly, I want to take you to the story of Jesus. And we could go anywhere in the Gospels and we could be here until like midnight looking at the Gospels and wrestling with what are we going to talk about in Jesus' story? But I want to take you to two separate places. First one, I think, is where Mitchell would take you. About a year ago, Mitchell got his first tattoo. He's got three, three nails that form a cross on his arm and right at the base of it, it says Mark chapter 2, verse 5. If I was 18 years old and paralyzed, I'm not sure Mark chapter 2, verse 5 is a verse I'd write on my arm. The verse says this, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. This is a familiar story to many of us. It's the story of the four friends who bring their friend to Jesus. He's paralyzed. There's so, such a big crowd. They go up on the roof. They do what all of us dream somebody else's friends never do at our house and cut a hole in the roof and lower their friend down. And Jesus looks at the man and he says, seeing your friend's faith, my child, your sins are forgiven. I think if I was Mitchell and at 18 years old, I was paralyzed, I'd tattoo Mark 2.11 on my arm. Mark 2.11 says, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. God, I want to walk. I think Mitchell understood our third thing. The God we wrestle with provides for our deepest need. No one knew the whole time Mitchell walked this journey if God would physically heal him. We all believed that God had the power to, that God had the ability to, but we didn't know if God would. We prayed, we cried, we yelled, we hoped, but we didn't know. But our deepest need, and I want to say this really gently, even in your darkest time, your deepest need is to know that there's a God who forgives you of your sins. There's a God who came to forgive you of your sins, to die on a cross, to pay for what you and I can't pay for. Because in the midst of that pain, that's what we need most. We all wanted Mitchell to walk. What he needed was a savior who would come and go to the cross and die for him so he could be in relationship 
but the God who created him. We need a God who knows and provides for our deepest needs. The next story I want to take you to is Jesus in the garden. You see, because we don't worship a God who provides for our deepest needs, we also worship our God who knows our pain personally. We don't worship a God who says, hey, you know what, I hope, I hope life on earth is okay for you. We worship a God who came down and wrestled with his father himself, who wrestled and cried out in the garden. Listen to these words from Luke chapter 22. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently and was in such agony of spirit that he sweat till the ground felt like drops of blood. Our God knows personally what it feels like to wrestle with the Father. He knows personally what it feels like to say, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, if there's anything else you can do, if there's any other plan, God, can we enact it now? I think he knows what Matt meant when he said, listen, I don't know who's right in the end of this, but write a different story. Write a different ending. That's what Jesus is crying out in the garden. Write a different story, please. He pleaded, just like we plead, just like in the middle of our storms, we cry out and say, God, please, not this. Anything but this, God. God said, this is the way it has to be. And this is the way it has to be. Because number five, our God is love. Above all else, when you wrestle with this God, know you're not wrestling with someone who's cruel, someone who's heartless. This is a compassionate God. This is a God who's bigger than we can imagine. This is a God who knows our deepest need. This is a God who knows what it feels like to wrestle, to hurt, to feel the pain. But this is a God who knows it all because he loved us. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he wanted to. Jesus went to the cross because he loves you and he loves me. And there was no other way to do this. There was no other way to make death end. But when Jesus hung on the cross and suffered the pain and died and three days later walked out of that grave, we get the hope that one day we're going to walk out to. I don't think we could have started this, this night or this time together any better than we could have started it than with that song. He walked out of the grave. And one day we're going to walk out too. 
Mitchell's going to stand up. And he's going to walk out. Because God loves us. Enough to come and die. 1 John 4, 8 through 10. God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world. That we can have eternal life. That this life isn't all there is. This life with pain and suffering and wrestling matches isn't all there is. There's an eternity waiting for us. Because God came in love. This is real love. We didn't love God. God loved us. And sent his son. The last thing I want you to know tonight doesn't come from any of these stories, but I couldn't leave it unsaid. Our God will never leave us. Our God will never leave us. I know sometimes in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the wrestling match, it feels like God's gone. Where'd you go? I'm all alone. God, where are you? Psalm 23, one chapter after Psalm 22, when the psalmist is crying out, why won't you answer me? Where are you? He cries out in Psalm 23, verse four, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. For you are close behind, beside me, and your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. Joshua 1.5, one of my favorite verses. Joshua's just taken over for Moses. The people are getting ready to walk into the promised land. And God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. We worship a God who shows up in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our questions, in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our wrestling matches, and says, I'm right here. I never left. I'll never leave you. I'm going to walk through the darkest storms of life with you. I proved that to you when I walked to the cross and I died for you. I want to walk with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I don't know how your wrestling match will end. I don't know what you're all wrestling with. I don't even know how it should end. And I don't want to stand up here and tell you this is how it should end or this is what God should do. That's not my place. But I want you to walk out of here tonight with not one doubt about the God you're wrestling with. Have doubts if he's there. Have doubts and questions about how big he is, about if he's strong enough for this. That's okay. He's big enough. Don't have doubts about who he is. Our God, the God you're wrestling with, the God who's in the middle of our pain with us is compassionate. Our God is bigger than we could ever imagine. Our God provides for our deepest needs. Our God knows your pain personally. Our God is love. And our God will never leave you.
this is what I've learned. This is what I watched. Watching a teenage boy wrestle with God. By watching mom and dad wrestle with God. So thanks, Mitchell. Give Jesus a high five for us. Pray with me. God, sometimes life's just hard. Sometimes if we're honest, it just sucks. We don't know what to do. We don't always know where to turn. We don't know what to say to people who are in the midst of a wrestling match. God, thank you. Thank you for being who you are. Thank you for being good. Thank you for always showing up in the midst of our hurt and our pain, of our doubts. Thanks that we can trust in that. God, I pray for those who are wrestling tonight right here in this room, wrestling with their own stuff, God, and we can't always see it because we're real good at putting on smiling, happy faces. God, I pray that they know who you are. I pray that they keep holding on and keep wrestling and keep fighting and just like Jacob, they don't let you go until you bless them. Thanks for Jesus. Thanks for the fact he showed up in our lives. We pray all this in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In just a few minutes, our ushers will come forward and they'll have the communion elements. Here at Calvary, we practice open communion. That simply means if you trust in Jesus, you know who he is, you're welcome at our table. You'll simply take the wafer, dip it in either red wine or the white grape juice. But each month as we come to this place, we get a face-to-face reminder of the God who showed up. The God who showed up and says, I love you. And I died for you. And so in that night, in the upper room, he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave a piece of it to his disciples and said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after dinner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant shed and formed in my blood. My blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins and for the sins of all who will believe. Each time you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. As we prepare to come, would you pray the Lord's Prayer with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory 
forever and ever. Amen. As you're ready, please come.